from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Bahariyeh Ruhani Ma'ani. Bahariyeh is the author of the work Leaves of the Twin Divine Trees, an in-depth study of the lives of women closely related to the Bab and Baha'u'llah, the central figures of the Baha'i faith. She also wrote the book Against Incredible Odds, Life of a 20th Century Iranian Baha'i Family, which is the story of her own life and co-authored the book Laws of the Kitabi Akdas, Tracing Their Evolution in Religious History, which is a book about the laws of the Baha'i faith. And finally, she wrote a work called Asiya Hanum, The Most Exalted Leaf, who is the wife of Baha'u'llah, who is the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith. She was born in Shiraz to Baha'i parents from the lineage of early martyrs of the faith. She studied Persian literature works at the University of Shiraz, Iran, before settling as a Baha'i pioneer in Kenya. Ultimately, she joined the staff of the Baha'i World Center in Haifa, Israel, and served as coordinator in the Department of Holy Places and as a special project aide to the Akdas Translation Committee that translated the Baha'i Book of Laws into English for publication in 1992. I started the interview by asking Baha'iyeh where she grew up, and what was it like growing up there? I was born and raised in Shiraz, Iran. It, like any other child growing up in a country and not having anything to contrast it with, we think that's the normal way of uh, the way all children are raised. Mm-hmm. Until later, when you see uh, that assumption is not correct, then you see what uh, you were deprived of or what advantages you had. Um, One thing that always struck me was the way women were treated because as an Islamic country, naturally, women didn't have the same rights and they were really badly treated. And as a child, I could see it and I took offense to it. At At a young age, huh? Yes, but all you could do was be outraged. I, I guess there was, what, what, what could a young child do seeing such injustice? Exactly. And um, I was always outspoken also. Uh, so I showed my rage as much as I could as a child and as I was growing up to oppose the kind of treatment that was meted out to some women. So what did that look like for you when you, when you did that? They thought I was, um, let's see how I should put it in English. I was overstepping my limits <laughs> as a child, uh-huh. uh, showing my anger and my unhappiness because I just, came out and said the way that I felt, Mm. not realizing that I was being raised in a Baha'i home where the values were different. Uh, 
and the children were treated differently, whether they were boys or girls. Right. So being a ch- an outspoken child in a country where the Baha'i faith is persecuted must be a dangerous situation. Of course, when I was being raised as a child in Iran, it was during the previous regime, and it wasn't as bad. Mm-hmm. Baha'is were being persecuted. There were lots of limitations, but it wasn't as bad as it is now since the revolution. But still, during the reign of the Shah, women were still very much restricted? Yes, definitely there was no equality. It improved gradually under the Shah to the point that there was a, there were women ministers. I think the minister of education was a woman, and she was assassinated after the revolution. But when I was growing up in the in the fifties, things were not as good as it became later on during the time of the Shah. What were your interests growing up? My interest was always to defend the right of the of the downtrodden. And naturally, women <laughs> <laughs> were a big lump of that downtrodden. Uh, it didn't make sense to me that half of the population of the country had to be disadvantaged in order to provide the arena for the other half to succeed and become prosperous. So did you carry this interest through high school and university? Yes, I did. I did, and I wanted to study law in order to be better equipped to defend such uh, underprivileged people. But there was no university, none of the universities, well, there was only one university in Shiraz, actually, with several faculties. There was not a faculty of law. And then then I wanted to study philosophy. Philosophy also was not available. So I, I studied Persian literature. I thought at least equipping myself with the language that was I needed to stand to understand the writings better was a good option and that's what I did. What did you do after you graduated from university? Now we enter another area of my life and that's when I went pioneering. Okay. Explain to the listeners what pioneering is. Since in the Baha'i faith, we do not have clergy, missionaries, Baha'u'llah has made it the responsibility of every individual Baha'i to inform those who don't know about the Baha'i faith, about Baha'u'llah and his teachings. Then every individual Baha'i has this responsibility, and I felt this very strongly. And I wanted to be able to go abroad and spread the teachings of Baha'u'llah. And I wanted to go to some far-off place, the farther the better, in order to meet other people of different cultures and backgrounds and also discuss with them what I valued as the teachings of Baha'u'llah, which are for humanity to be united, 
and for universal peace to be established. And in gender equality is one of those principles of the Baha'i Baha faith that is in the center of really my life. I think it's the most revolutionary principle that Baha'u'llah brought for the people today. And just before I graduated from university, there was an opportunity for me to go to East Africa. I grabbed the opportunity and got up and went to Nairobi in Kenya. And what did you do when you arrived? Okay, I did not know English enough to do much, so my first order of business was to learn English well enough to teach the Baha'i faith. And the way that it um, was made possible for me to go to Kenya was a marriage proposal from someone who was already there since 1954. He had gone to Seychelles Islands and then to Kenya. And so I went there, married him, started to learn English better. My English was very elementary when I left Iran. I had learned it at school and taken some courses with Iranian American Association, but uh, I couldn't converse in English. That was uh, the first thing I did until, unfortunately, my husband passed away a year and a month after our marriage. And that was just a few days before our only child, child was born. So naturally, the priorities changed a little bit, at least for time being. And my first concern became to raise my child. And I couldn't travel. I had to stay put and do as much as I could while raising a child, learning something to earn a living. And what was that, Baharia, that you did to earn a li living while raising a child? I started learning um, um, typing and shorthand, Pittman's shorthand and bookkeeping, which were the requirements in Kenya for a secretary. Nowadays, they call them general managers, but in those days, they were secretaries. Um, it was during the colonial time when I went to Kenya. It was 1960, December of 1960. Uh, Kenya was not independent yet, so everything was according to the British system. You may, your audience and yourself may wonder if, my English was so poor, how could I choose to become a secretary? <laughs> I don't know. I, I really worked hard. to. And Pittman's shorthand, I don't know if you are familiar with it, very accurate, the outlines. And I learned that, then I had to gain speed and then apply for a job. And I was fortunate enough to get a job and quickly move up the ladder. And before I left Kenya, I, was, I had a job with the Rockefeller Foundation, which was very active in university development program. And I had wonderful bosses. But you were basically doing the same work at the Rockefeller Center? 
Yes, I was. I, I became an executive secretary and mm. then an administrative assistant in the Institute for Development Stab- Studies, uh, where the Rockefeller Foundation was very active. They actually financed the institute and they brought researchers in the social studies and cultural studies where they did research and it was just the right uh, kind of ground for me to flourish, to learn about research work that these researchers did. Yeah, I improved my lot with (laughs) God's aid and assistance while I was raising my child. What were the reasons you left Kenya? I stayed in Kenya for 10 years. During that time, I went on pilgrimage. The audience may wonder what Baha'i pilgrimage is. Right. Pilgrimage uh, to the place where Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i faith, lived the last, I think, 24 years of his life. And that's where he died and passed away and is buried. That is the most holy spot in the Baha'i world. And it's the point of adoration, the point where we turn to in prayer, when we say our obligatory prayer. And uh, that's one of the places of pilgrimage that Baha'is can visit. And there is a program for nine days that uh, it's based on spiritual growth and focusing on what's the most important thing in life. And visiting the holy places, and especially the shrine of Baha'u'llah and the shrine of his forerunner, the Bab, which is in Haifa. Haifa and Akka are the twin cities in what is today Israel. But when Baha'u'llah was exiled to Akka in 1868, it was called Palestine. So Baha'is were in that part of the world, in the Holy Land, which is called by all um, religions, at least the monotheistic religions of the Semitic line. They were there before the state of Israel was established. And you had the opportunity to go? I had the opportunity to go there with my daughter, who was nearly 10 years old. During that time, I think the members of the Universal House of Justice, again, I use a term that's probably unfamiliar to your audience. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Universal House of Justice is the supreme governing body of the Baha'i international community, of the Baha'i faith throughout the world. And they are elected every five years. And their base and their headquarters is in Haifa, in Israel. While we were there, a member of the Universal House of Justice who realized uh, I had secretarial skills and they were looking for somebody who could translate and do secretarial work, approached me and asked, if I would be willing to relocate to some other place where I could serve the faith at an an international level. I didn't know exactly what he had in mind, 
But obviously my response was such that he realized that I would consider. After we returned to Kenya, to Nairobi, I think it took 10 months uh, before a letter came inviting myself to serve at the Baha'i World Center. And I was assured that um, there were means to educate my daughter there. And uh, so and I accepted the invitation and moved to Israel. And you did that work for the entire time you were at the Baha'i World Center in Haifa, Israel? And exactly that. And I moved from secretarial work to other kind of work that um, suited my background and the linguistic skills that I had. I translate from Farsi to English. There was a time when the Kitab Aqdas was being translated into English. Kitab Aqdas is the mother book of the Baha'i dispensation. It is a book of laws and principles that Baha'u'llah has revealed. The book became available in English, authorized English translation in, I think, 1992. It was published. I helped with some aspects of that project to research the notes and uh, those who have seen the Kitab Aqdas, they see that it's not just the laws of the Kitab Aqdas, it includes also the tablets of Baha'u'llah revealed after the Kitab Aqdas and it has the codification and it has questions and answers which uh, consists of questions that early believers ask of Baha'u'llah after they saw the Kitab Aqdas about the laws and the answers that he gave and also other notes which explains some of the laws on the basis of other tablets and writings that exist dealing with the, the same law. My work was to do research and find uh, material for these notes. Now, I noticed, Baharia, that you wrote a book called Laws of the Kitabi Akdas? That's right. I'm co-authored with my daughter, Sabeda Ma'ani Ewing. Yes. Mm-hmm. Was it based on this work that you're describing? Uh, it wasn't based on that, but uh, it was um, inspired by that. Mm-hmm. And the reason we did it... Um, I could read from, you have obviously seen the book. The purpose of this book is to demonstrate the evolutionary unfolding of the revealed laws of different religions. It attempts to convey a picture of the background of some of the laws of Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and the Babi and Baha'i faiths, with the aim of enhancing understanding of why the laws evolved as they did. In doing so, it demonstrates both the differences between the laws of the religious dispensations demanded by the different contexts in which they appeared and the golden evolutionary thread that runs through them and binds them together as one indivisible whole. The hope of the authors is that Baha'is 
who come from various backgrounds will find it useful as a tool wherewith they can familiarize themselves with the laws of great religions of the past and understand the backdrop for Baha'i laws. Regarding this, we have been guided by the following statement of the Universal House of Justice in its introduction to Kitab Abbas, to the Kitab Abbas. Many laws relate to those of past dispensations, especially the two most recent ones, those of Muhammad and the Bab, embodied in the Quran and the Bayan. Through his law, Baha'u'llah gradually unveils the significance of the new levels of knowledge and behavior to which the peoples of the world are being called. I thought this uh, passage would explain the reason we decided it would be helpful for uh, Baha'is and also others to realize that the basis of the laws is really the same. It has just over uh, thousands of years evolved to the point that now that humanity is coming of age, we need a new set of laws that are applicable today. And we believe only another manifestation of God, another revealer of the law, uh, can do that, has the authority to do it. Human beings cannot change the laws. It's within the domain of the manifestations of God to do it. And that's the work we did just to help the friends who are not familiar with the laws of other religions to enlighten themselves about them. So how long were you at the Baha'i World Center? I was at the Baha'i World Center from December 1971 to August 2009, about 38 years. I wow, think. Yeah. <laughs> that's a long time. Yeah, that's where I spent most of my life. <laughs> so you must have done most of your written work while you were at Haifa? Yes, I did. I did. So maybe we could review some of the works that you've done. The first one I have here is Leaves of the Twin Divine Trees. Can you describe for us what that work was? Leaves of the Twin Divine Trees is about the lives of the prominent women related to the Bab and Baha'u'llah. The Bab is the manifestation of God and the herald of Baha'u'llah. He came to prepare the people for the coming of Baha'u'llah. Baha'u'llah is the author of the Baha'i faith. And it goes back to my interest from childhood that I felt women were not properly treated in history, even in the early history of the Baha'i faith. The reason is that our early history is influenced by the Islamic tradition and the way women were treated. Historians who were invariably men traditionally could not delve into the lives of women and write about them or their particulars. They didn't feel it was proper. 
And that's why I think they were influenced by the Islamic tradition of not treating women in history and intimately anyway. So in the early history of our faith, we see that women are usually nameless. They are mentioned as the wife of so-and-so, the sister of so-and-so, the mother of so-and-so, except for Tahere, who really rose up upon, above all barriers. And who was Tahere? Uh, Tahere is this uh, woman who was very eloquent and was a prodigy and uh, she was so smart from childhood that her father educated her like a son. And she's the one who recognized the Bob actually without seeing him because she couldn't uh, go and travel throughout Iran to look for the promised Qa'im, the promised one, one of the two promised ones of Shia Islam. Uh, But she knew that um, her um, brother-in-law who was going to look for him would find him. And she wrote a letter and said, when you see him, uh, you just present this letter on my behalf. And in that letter, she pledged allegiance to him. The Bob called the first 18 people who on their own found him and paid allegiance to him and accepted him as the promised one, uh, as the letters of the living. So she became the sole female letter of the living uh, in the Bobby dispensation. And this was in the 19th century, and she was ultimately martyred, right? Exactly. It was, was yes, in, in 1850, I think, 52 In 1852, she was uh, strangled because uh, in Islam, usually they do not, um, that's my understanding, in Shia Islam, they don't uh, execute a woman for her faith because they believe a woman is weak enough for uh, the spiritual leaders to be able to make her change her mind. They arranged for her to meet with these uh, Muslim religious leaders uh, who were trying to convert her back to Islam. And when they realized that uh, she was staunch, firm, and wouldn't change her mind, they decided to put her to death. And they did it in 1852 by strangling her to death and then throwing her whether completely dead or not, they threw her down at well, and they filled with troubles. This woman is really the woman in the early history of the Baha'i faith that is, has a whole chapter in, in the Dawnbreakers devoted to Tahere. No other person has a whole chapter devoted to him or her. But it's because she was so audacious and uh, she was so extraordinary that no one could really ignore her. And uh, the other one is, of course, Zainab, who fought in Zanjan when they were persecuting the Babis there. And she took up, uh, yeah, she fought uh, against uh, the 
adversary. So she actually had to dress up as a man in order exactly. to... Exactly, she's the one. Yeah. And she was only 14 years old. She realized the only way she could help uh, her comrades uh, was to appear like a man. Uh, so anyway, when I read the history of, when I read the Dawnbreakers, when I was 12 years old, I was painfully aware of the absence of women. And so I, later in life, and being at the Baha'i World Center, and, and knowing that there were these writings that were revealed in honor of women, I asked permission to access those writings because there was very little available elsewhere that I could base a book on. The Universal House of Justice allowed me to do that. And I spent years doing research because this was in addition to the job that I had. Finally, the book came out, which is called Leaves of the Twin Divine Trees. The twin divine trees being the Bab and Baha'u'llah. And leaves, leaf is a title that Baha'u'llah addressed the women believers, especially the female members of his family, uh, by that title. That's why I chose leaves. And which women did you cover in your work? Um, it's the mother of the Bab, the mother of Baha'u'llah, the wives of uh, the Bab and of Baha'u'llah, the sisters of Baha'u'llah, the sister of Khadija Begum, the wife of the Bab, had a sister who was of great assistance to her after the Bab was executed. And she was a great woman, and she was the first woman after the wife of the Bab passed away who was given the custodianship of the house of the Bab in Shiraz. And this was completely revolutionary because this is a job reserved for men. In Islam, custodians are men. I haven't heard of any woman being a custodian of a holy place and a holy place of that importance. So there's a chapter about her and then uh, about Asi Khanum, about Monira Khanum, the wife of Abdul Baha. I think there are about 12 different chapters, one for all the sisters of Baha'u'llah. Some of them were faithful, recognized Baha'u'llah's station. One of them was uh, dead against him and opposed him at every step of the way. So it's all the women of the two holy families. And I noticed you had a separate work for Asiya Hanum. Yes, I first published this small book about Asiya Hanum, which, because um, already Mr. Hand of the Cause, Mr. Hassan Balyuzi, had published a book, a small book about Khadija Begum, the wife of the Bab. Uh, so I did it, I did one on Asiya Hanum. It was before I had enough to publish Leaves. And that book on Asya Khanum is incorporated in the leaves as one of the chapters. And again, Asya Hanum was the wife of Baha'u'llah? 
Yes, the, the faithful wife of Baal. Mm-hmm. Asya Khanum was the mother of Abdul Baha, the successor of Baha'u'llah, and, and his eldest son from Asya Khanum. Asya Khanum was also the mother of Baha'i Khanum, the greatest holy leaf, the most outstanding woman of the Baha'i dispensation. Another book you wrote is called Against Incredible Odds. Can you describe that work for us? That book is a really a family portrait, the history of the family, because from my father's side, the line goes back to the time of the Bab. They were from Nairis, and they fought in the fortress of Khaje under Janabe Bahid. So for folks who aren't familiar with those historical moments, maybe you could give a little brief background. Okay. Wahid was one of the outstanding um, religious leaders, a clergyman who was well recognized. And when the Bab declared his mission in Shiraz, Muhammad Shah, who was the sovereign at that time, wanted to investigate and find out what it was all about. So he chose Janab Wahid to go to Shiraz, investigate and report back to him. Wahid went to Shiraz, met with the Bab three times, and the third time he humbled himself before the Bab and accepted him as the promised Qa'im. And from there, he sent a letter to Muhammad Shah that he was not going to return to Tehran to report in person. Instead, he was going to promote the cause of the bar. He started off by going to the place where his family lived. He had two homes, one in Yazd and one in Neiris. In each place, he had a wife. But his main residence was in Yazd. He went to Yazd first and to other places. And anyway, he ended up in Neiriz. And in Neiriz, uh, his usual way was to go to the mosque and proclaim that the Lord of the Age, the promised Qa'im, had appeared. Of course, it was very hard and difficult for the uh, spiritual leaders of uh, the Muslims, uh, spiritual leaders, to hear it and uh, or let alone accept it. They incited the governor to oppose him. And when Wahid realized that he was um, going to be annihilated with all the people who had accepted this new message, uh, left the town went to the fortress of Khaje, which is just outside the town of Neiris. In the Babi faith, I must add this, that in the Babi faith, unlike the Baha'i faith, the followers of the Bab were allowed to defend themselves by taking up arms. And when they realized that they were being attacked, by those who were against the new message. They took up arms in the fortress of Khaje. In the end, of course, what happened was uh, that the governor and his people 
they actually invited Wahid to go to the camp of the governor and uh, promised by signing the Quran that they would not attack him and they would allow him to explain why he had accepted the Babi faith and enlighten others. After three days that he was in their camp, they found someone who said, I was not a signatory to the letter and I'm willing to go against the promise. And anyway, to make a long story short, those who are interested can read the Dawnbreakers and the chapter on the upheaval of Nairis, uh, that they attacked the followers of Wahid in the fortress of Khaje after they had laid down their arms because Janab Wahid uh, was forced to write a letter and say that I'm being treated well, which at the time he wrote the letter was true. Um, and you needn't worry, you lay down your arms and leave the fortress. As soon as they left the fortress, the army and their, the governor's army attacked them and uh, killed most of them. And 40 of them who took refuge in a cave, women and children included, they set fire to that cave and they burned to death. And those that they took as um, captives, they sent to Shiraz and they were executed in Shiraz, most of them. And they released uh, some of the women and children who had survived. Among the people who survived and was a child at that time was the grandfather of my father, whose uh, father and uncles had all been killed in the fortress of Khaji. So the book Against Incredible Odds traced this line and explains how this family at the outset was persecuted while they were Babis. And when they accepted Baha'u'llah, when Baha'u'llah declared his mission in Baghdad, they became Baha'is and some of them went to Baghdad and actually visited Baha'u'llah. And then when they returned to Iran, they were persecuted, and their children were persecuted, and their grandchildren mm. <laughs> persecuted. And this book is a portrait of the family, as I said, just showing how from the beginning up to the present time, or at least until the 20th century, the end of the 20th century, they were persecuted, and some of them left Iran. When pioneering, including myself, my parents have had eight children, and uh, seven of us left Iran and went abroad as pioneers, which I explained earlier on what it means. Right. So this book is about my family. So, Baharie, I had asked you to select some passages from your works that you wanted to share, and I, I saw uh, we did share the passage from the laws of Kitabi Akdas. That's right. Do you have any other passages that you'd like to share from your works? Um, I, I can share a passage from uh, maybe Leaves, and I have a few from Against Incredible Odds. That would be great. In the introduction to 
the leaves, I explain how women previously at the, in the early history of the faith were of the mindset that they were, they were familiar with being inequal, unequal with men and had accepted their lots. And they did not raise any objection to the way they were treated. But the newer generation, young women who are being raised today, they want to know more about their history because this is their legacy, their heritage. And so my suggestion is that history is one of those areas that we need to take a fresh look at and treat women equally with the way men are treated. Because history, well, from the word history, <laughs> his story, is, deals with men. Right. And uh, we need to change that because gender equality involves so many different angles and treating women fairly in history is one of those. That's important to me. And so I say one area where change is desperately needed is in the way women are treated in history. Lack of information about most of the early women believers, including the women closely related to the central figures of the faith, raises questions about who they were, how they lived their lives, what contribution they made to the progress of the faith, and so on. Bridging the gap between the exercise of unlimited patience towards the unequal treatment of women in history advocated by older believers and the eagerness of the younger generation to ensure that they are not deprived of an important part of their heritage requires conscious, conscientious and systematic effort. A significant part of that effort lies in delving into and studying the lives of the early women believers who played an important role through suffering and working behind the scenes in shaping historical events. The effort also includes an analysis and assessment of the factors that prompted historians to discuss historical events without disclosing in full the names and particulars of female participants. The early Bobby and Baha'i historians and chroniclers followed a pattern prevalent at the time the Bab and Baha'u'llah revealed their missions in the 19th century. By then, the plight of women had reached the lowest conceivable level. Written history, especially in Middle Eastern countries of the 19th century, dealt almost exclusively with men's concerns and events associated with them. Men were major participants in what they termed historical events. They formulated rules for evaluating what constituted important roles 
and measured contributions by individuals to historical events by standards arbitrarily set. The system was based on convention with deep roots many centuries old. It was designed by men and operated by them with no room for the work performed by women. Women were generally invisible and had no voice. Thank you for sharing that, Baharia. You're most welcome. Do you have another passage you'd like to share with us? I have one chapter about my own life in Against Incredible Odds, how I survived the years that I spent in Kenya. And there was something that I thought it would show what the mindset and what the behavior of people were in those days in my own lifetime, the things, the way that they have changed, it, it may look very odd because I'm explaining here in this passage what I experienced when I entered in Kenya. The first thing I learned upon arrival in Nairobi was that my fiancé could not book me a hotel room because he did not know the color of my skin. We hadn't met, and we, had, we decided to get married without actually meeting. Uh, it's a long story, and <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, I cannot go into details now. People have to read the book. People have to <laughs> read the book. It's uh, an interesting story, to me anyway. Anyway, when I heard that, it sounded weird to me, and I thought, it was a joke. Unfortunately, the statement was as factual as factual statement can be. It was the, during the colonial times when I set foot in Kenya. Segregation of the races was the order of the day. Although Iranians were classified as honorary whites by the immigration authorities, Hotels reserved for the whites made reservations on the basis of the color of the guest's skin. The rules governing racial segregation were rigid and remained in place until Kenya gained independence in 1963. I arrived in Kenya more than two years before its independence. It was in the midst of the Mau Mau movement, which brought about the end of colonialism, the establishment of self-rule and independence for Kenya. Now, can you imagine the Baha'is who were spreading the teachings of Baha'u'llah, one of them being the elimination of prejudices of all kinds? not only against women, against different races. So we were teaching at that time a principle that was very unfamiliar to the people who lived under that kind of setup and rule. Was there resistance by the white population to the Baha'is as a result? No, 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 I must say there wasn't. 
in South Africa, where things were much more rigid, you know, the whites and uh, the white Baha'is and uh, black Baha'is could not meet together. And they were very restricted. Gradually, it improved. But uh, initially, they could not meet together. But in Kenya, by the time I went there, and I never heard a story that the whites had opposed the Baha'is. The Africans lived there in their own locations outside Nairobi. They could not live in the city. So usually the pioneers went to African locations to meet with the Baha'is there. And that was before we had a Baha'i center. After we built the Baha'i center, I think it was after independence and they could come. Uh, freely and easily. So could the Baha'is, could the white Baha'is and the African Baha'is associate in Baha'i meetings together? And they could, Be- according to my experience. As I said, it was, um, I arrived in Kenya when Mau Mau had, the movement had already started. And, you know, their main aim was to get rid of their colonial masters. Uh, it was very violent. And the British already, I think, had got the message that they could not continue their rule. Earlier, before I went there, I'm sure things were more strict. But by the time I arrived, it wasn't um, as bad. Only The only thing I experienced was that Africans had to be brought to meet in homes, Baha'i homes, and had to be taken back. They couldn't just get on a bus and move to town if they didn't have a work permit. They had to have a reason for being in the city. Now, my English was very poor, and I could only watch and experience things, and I couldn't quite understand everything that was being said and went on. So do you have one more passage you'd like to share? I can share a passage about when I left Iran to go uh, to Kenya. Okay. Okay. I was in the third year of my studies when the prospects of pioneering abroad pulled me away from my beloved family, hometown, studies, friends, and everything that I held dear. My longing to pioneer, which I had held ever since I was 10 years old, was put to the test when doors miraculously opened for me to leave Iran and settle in East Africa, then ruled by the British. Going through the open door had one condition attached to it. Marrying someone who had lived in the area since 1954. Someone I did not know at all. This condition I would have probably dismissed as totally unreasonable had I not been so enthralled by the prospect of fulfilling a lifelong dream. From childhood, I really wanted to just... I, I lived in Iran for 20 years. I thought it was long enough to live in one place. I wanted so much to just go abroad, experience the world, 
and do whatever I could for people who didn't, who were not familiar with the Baha'i faith. And I was willing to do whatever I could to reach that goal. However, my prospects were really bleak. Studying Persian literature, not having a job, no skills, not speaking English or any other language uh, well enough. Realized it, 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 how could it be? And yet I had this deep conviction that I was going to attain my goal. And so when this door opened, I didn't hesitate. I said, yes, it wasn't easy. And I was tested along the way. One of those tests was uh, losing my husband so soon after our marriage. But then we had a child who is now a grown-up woman and has her own daughter. Yes, there are many blessings in life in, if we have a positive outlook and I do count my blessings. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Bahariye Rouhani Ma'ani, author and translator who wrote books about the historical women in the early years of the Baha'i faith. You can find this interview and other interviews at www.abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. That I wanna see, cause I'm a spiritual what? Revolutionary, yeah. I am the change that I wanna see, cause I'm a spiritual what? Yeah, this desert heat struggles endlessly to bury me. Immensity, the feet we face may deter the weak. His words are deep, never bleak to those that seek. The chosen meek who rose relentlessly to herd the sheep. This bird is freed of its cage and earthly bondage. Urgently needs to serve, pay worthy homage, rise to the task. Eyes fixed on the knowledge. Ten thousand angels got my back as promised. Yeah, I have the light that you're dying for. I am the strength in the lion's roar. I'm not much different than you, cause I got limits too. Beloved, my creator has defined my core. And that's the point where I pivot at So any strength that I'm given, I can give it back Living at times where the world isn't filled with that Spiritual vibe, I'm in the field trying to deal with that Singing that, I am the change that I want to see Cause I'm a spiritual revolutionary I am the change that I want to see Cause I'm a spiritual revolutionary I am the change that I want to see Cause I'm a spiritual what? Revolutionary, y'all I am the change that I want to see Cause I'm a spiritual what? Revolutionary, Start the revolution, spiritual in nature Fueled by the fire of our love for the maker People say the youth are the future's creators While the future is now, there is no time for later But we're lost in a world full of talk Everybody's ears are always clouded by this dross We're living in disunity, it leaves us at a loss I feel like we keep our souls in a box 
But now our mission is given, we've got the drive, let's be driven You see our spiritual lyrics are paired with intricate rhythms We'll make a world we envision, invent a new way of living Through evolution of the spirit we accomplish is bidding So let me tell you the things that you're prepared to know There's gems of inestimable value that you carry though Our spirit, no need to keep it buried So say it with me, I'ma be a revolutionary, yo I am the change that I wanna see Cause I'm a spiritual what? Revolutionary, y'all I am the change that I wanna see Cause I'm a spiritual what? Revolutionary I am the change that I wanna see Cause I'm a spiritual what? Revolutionary, y'all I am the change that I wanna see Cause I'm a spiritual what? Revolutionary when the hero's a name, let them mention she With the strength indeed to swim against the stream Let them mention he who lives intentionally Whose will won't bend if the end is seen Let them mention me, let them mention we Who give 100% body, soul and mentally Let them mention we who serve and bend the knee And pray the blessings of the most flow generously We who rise and fight to see the justice stands With the voice to answer those who cry out What's the plan? The seekers may teach us and keep us of faith uh -huh. Then guidance to lead us to battle erase This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.